in preparing this sermon, I came up with an interesting analogy, and I'm, I'm really curious. Um, how many of you played a sport when you were in high school or junior high? Did anyone play a sport? Okay, yes, many of you. Awesome, wonder. How many of you played football? Anyone play football? Okay, yes, one there, a couple, one in the back, right? Nice, okay. I was an offensive left tackle, great. Baseball or softball, anyone? Anyone baseball or softball? Okay, nice, yes. Yes, there we go, my people. I was first baseman. Um, basketball? God bless you guys. I could never do that. I was a terrible shot. I just, no, no, thank you. But I'm okay. I'm glad that some of you like baseball, basketball. Um, volleyball. Any volleyball players? Anyone? Yeah, okay. There we go. Now, here's the one I'm really curious about. Any wrestlers? Did anyone wrestle? Oh, no way. Okay, there are a couple. Okay. I for sure thought there was going to be nobody. I was like, oh, yeah, no one does that. No one wants to put their body through that much torture. Um, so, but, I, but I thought about wrestling as this. And I'm like, man, this is, this is great. And see... Wrestling was probably the hardest sport that I've ever done in my whole life. Ever done is by far the hardest sport. It's harder than football. It's definitely harder than baseball. Um, no competition there. It's harder than volleyball, and I'm sure it's def- harder than basketball. It was harder than any sport I had ever done because you're pushing your body to the limit for like six, six minutes straight. Uh, somebody came up to me earlier and said, you know, I, I did cross country before I did wrestling, and I thought I'd be fine because, you know, I could run 10 miles. But wrestling, there's nothing like wrestling for, you're like sprinting six minutes straight for wrestling. It's just a hard sport. And the reason I did it was because I've always just been kind of a big guy. Um, I've just always been big. I mean, in eighth grade, I was 13 years old. Eighth grade, I, I reached my max height. So 5'11". 13-year-old me, still the same height, 5'11". And I weighed 225 pounds. I was just a big dude. I was just huge. I was like, so everyone's like, hey, Blake, you want to wrestle? You're really big. I'm like, yeah, sure. Why not? Um, The hardest sport I've done is baseball. I should be fine. I was really wrong. And so what was great about it, though, wrestling, is that there's all these different weight classes. So you had like 103, 112, 125, none of the ones that I would ever get close to. And then you had like 135, and then it keeps going up. And then you had 171 or 169, and then 189, and then 215, and then you had heavyweights. And thankfully, there was a bunch of people on that end, like wrestling every week. There's two to three people each role wrestling. And there was me, who was 215 pounds or somewhere in that range. And I didn't have to wrestle anyone. So I just got to wrestle on the team every week. I made the cut every week. It was great. And so that was me freshman year. I just wrestled every week. Now, again, I was not all that athletic when I started. So I had a record of two to nine um, by the time I finished. Um, but what was great is I started losing weight. And like, I didn't even know it. By the time I started my sophomore year, my coach is like, Blake, you could wrestle 171. I was like, me? I don't know. I don't weigh that much. And I step on, I'm like, I guess I can. And so it was at that moment that I'm like, okay, I'm probably not going to lose a lot more weight than this. And I can definitely gain weight if I want to. That's pretty easy. Um, but I could, I could stay at this weight. I can, I can try and get here. And so I had to make this choice. I had to say, okay, am I going to choose to make weight every week? Am I going to choose to do this? Or am I just going to choose to be comfortable on the 189 on the bottom end of it? And I told myself, okay, I'm going to do this. And thankfully, all through, all through wrestling, my coach told me, hey, if you want to make a certain weight, I can help you get there. Like, I'll coach you. I'll push you to your limits. I'll make sure you lose the weight. That's fine. But if you don't, if you're not worried about that, don't tell me. I was like, okay, I won't tell you. And so every week I was pushing myself to that point, and, and I made it most of the time. 
But there were weeks that was hard because I'd get after the match on Thursday or Friday and then Saturday comes along and then my family's love language of ice cream would come to the table and I'd be like, let us partake. Um, and I'd eat ice cream. And I'm like, well, there's still ice cream left over on Sunday. And you can't let ice cream just sit in the freezer. I mean, it'll go bad. You know what I mean? So I'm like, okay, I got to eat the ice cream now on Sunday. And then Monday would come and my coach would be like, Blake, what are you doing? I'm like, sorry, sorry, coach. Sorry. It's like, my family just loves ice cream. And so, and then I would lose the weight and I'd be fine. But, but I still, there were times like on Tuesday, I want ice cream because we bought more by that point. Um, and I'm like, I really want this, but I can't because I have to weigh in tomorrow. And I have to be diligent enough to say, no, I can't eat the ice cream. Right? And so as we look at Paul's message in Romans this morning, we, we see some of the same tension. It's not about ice cream, right? Like I'm wrestling with ice cream. Like do I eat it, do I not? Um, but Paul here is talking about wrestling with following the, following the law of the spirit or the law of the flesh. He has these two choices in front of him, and he's realizing that he's choosing one and the other, and sometimes one is good and sometimes one is bad, and he's wrestling with these choices. Right? And so if you want to follow along, you can pull out a Bible in front of you or pull it up on your phone. We're going to be in Romans chapter 7 right at the end of it. Um, and if you know, if you've been with us through the summer, you know that we've been going through Romans. And the way that our lectionary does it sometimes is it takes these big jumps. So last week we were in Romans 6, verses 1 through 11, and now we're all the way at the end of chapter 7, 1. And Peter used this analogy that sometimes we do it, and it's like a rock skipping across the water. And what I like about what we're doing is, you know, we're throwing this first rock, and we got all these big skips, and then we got a bunch of little skips at the end. It's like, right? And you know what it's like, because then the next few weeks we're going to be going through all of Romans 8. We just slow down, go verse by verse through Romans 8. But we're going to be looking at the beginning of chapter 7 because there's a lot that happens from verse 11 in chapter 6 all the way to verse 21 in chapter 7. Right? And so in chapter 6, to refresh your brains a little bit, like Paul or Peter last week talked about baptism, right? And the baptism and, and this life-changing reality that happens in baptism where you are buried and you die with Christ, and then you are brought up and you are raised with him in newness of life. Right? But right at the beginning of chapter 7, if you look in verse 1, you see that Paul changes his audience a little bit. See, Paul's writing to a group of people that are both Jews and Gentiles, believers and not. And so at the beginning of chapter 7, he says, hey, I'm switching to you Jews, yes, for you that follow the law, yes, you Jews. Okay, we're switching the audience because... They're confused. Some of the Jews are like, okay, but you said that, you know, these are the people of God, those who have been baptized. But I thought the people of God were those who followed the law. And I believe in Jesus and I want to follow him, but don't these people have to follow the law too? And so now they're reconciling with what, what was the law about? What was the purpose of the law? And so he, so he starts talking about this and he gives his people... Um, and, he, and he starts to lay it out them, the tension that they start facing in this law. And the law he's talking about here is the Torah or the Old Testament, right? And to give you an example of where it starts is with the Ten Commandments. See, God gave his chosen people the Ten Commandments. They were in slavery for 400 years, 400 years. And after that, they're finally brought out of slavery and into, into freedom. And so to, to inaugurate this relationship that God is making with his people again, Moses goes up to the mountain and he receives the Ten Commandments, this, the law that they were supposed to follow. And he comes down, and if you know the story, what are, what are they doing when he comes down from this mountain? 
They're worshiping a cow. Of all things, we're like, oh, guys, don't you know Yahweh just saved you and now you just made this golden calf and you're worshiping this golden calf? But for the Israelites, this is how they started to be formed. Right? Over 400 years, the Egyptians didn't allow them to worship the way that they, God wanted them to worship. They were co-opted into this other pagan religion that had um, idols and multiple different gods. And they would see the Egyptians worshiping these gods. And the Israelites were trying to stay faithful. But they're like, okay, well, these people are worshiping and they seem to be doing pretty good. I mean, they got pyramids going up thanks to us. And so, right, so they're like, they, so maybe that's how we worship. And so when they leave the Egyptians and they're finally free, they're trying to think, how do, how do we worship? Well, maybe we make a golden calf. That'll do it. Right? But no, it's, it's not how they do it. Right? And this is just one way of many that we see in the Old Testament. The people of God fail to uphold the law. They're given the law, and then through Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, they're told how to live this law in different ways, laws for the priests and things, and, and, and all of them end up failing. The story, we see people constantly fail. I mean, I think about David and Bathsheba. I mean, he literally killed another man to take his wife. And yet he was the king for the Jews. He was the king for, for the Israelites. And so we, we see them failing over and over and over and over again. And this is why he... But the law did something important for the people of God. It did something important. It showed them God's character. It showed them the people that God wanted them to be. Right? They were his people, and they were supposed to be a light to the world, a nation set apart to be a blessing to those other nations. So without this law, they wouldn't know how to separate themselves from the other nations. And so Paul, in verses 7 through 12, you can kind of read there as I go through it, but he talks about this, the law of covetousness, for example, is like, thou shalt not covet. He's like, well, I didn't know that that was a law until I was told it was a law. But now that I know it's a law, like sin is crouching at my door and I find myself coveting all the time. Right? It's, like, it's like a kid with cookies. You know what I'm saying? It's like you, you might you make some cookies for the neighbors and the first batch, they come out a little crispy. You know, you know like you're trying to get the oven temperature right and all that stuff. So that you're like, I can't give them these cookies. I got to make better cookies. So you make more cookies. And then the kid comes up and he sees these cookies. He sees some like kind of like harder ones. They're still fine. They're still cookies, right? But then he sees the good ones and he just takes the good cookie. And you're like, wow, what are you doing taking the cookie? That was not your cookie. He's like, but I wanted the cookie. Right? Apparently I like to talk about food a lot. Um, he's like, but I wanted the cookie. And you're like, no, that wasn't for you. That was for somebody else. You're coveting something that I was going to give to somebody. And, so, and then you acted on that. And then you took the cookie and you ate it. You can't even give it back to me anymore. And by the time you can give it back to me, I don't want it. All right. And so, but they're like, but they may not have been told that before. They're like, oh, I didn't know that. Mom, right? I didn't know that, Dad. I'm sorry, right? But they're learning. They're learning about what does it mean not to steal? Like, and I'm sure, right? Like, hey, if you would have asked me for the cookie, I would have given you one. It's not like I was holding the cookie. He's not trying to give you a cookie. They were, they were yours. They could have been yours. You should ask for the cookie. And so just as a child is learning how to interact with the world in the way like stealing and lying and, and these ways of doing good and evil, the Israelites were trying to learn this way of doing good and evil. Right? And the law was to teach them that. The law was to guide the people. 
And so this is where we get to verse 21, where Paul is, is now wrestling with this a little bit. So he says, So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil is close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Paul is seeing this tension amongst his people and with himself about living a life that Christ has told us to live. Normally we would hear the summary of the law, right? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. Right? To love your neighbor as yourself. On these two laws rest all the Ten Commandments, right? And so the, the, the law that like Christ imposes new law, he says, hey, I want you to love God and I want you to love your neighbor as yourself. Right? And you can see that people are hearing this. They're like, well, of course, I want to love God, but I also find myself falling into sin. I find myself falling into temptation. And see, sin is still crouching at their door. Right? Sin and death and evil have, have received their final blow. They've see, received the mortal wound that is going to kill that. But we still deal with the consequences of sin today because Christ has yet to return. And we're waiting for him to return. And so in the meantime, we're faced with these same situations. Do I, you know, do I follow the law of the flesh that leads to death or do I follow the law of the spirit that leads to life? And sometimes it's easy to understand, and sometimes it's difficult. One example I, I, I could think about this was, there's a day I was driving back from working out, obviously a while ago, and it was, I saw this, girl, this car on the side of the road, other side of the road, and I could tell they had a flat tire. And I could tell God was telling, prompting me. He was like, go help this person. I'm like, okay. I've got like three or four hours to work and I was just going to shower and read and I don't really want to read anyway. So that's helpful. Um, so yeah, let me, I'll go help them. Like, yeah, I'll listen, Lord, I'll go help. And so I get off the freeway, I go around, I, I get behind them and I, find, I get up to this car and this girl steps out of a car. And this girl actually, I, I can't remember her name to save my life, but I grew up in church with this girl. I was like, oh, I know you. And she's like, oh, yeah, you're black. I'm like, yeah, I totally don't remember your name. Sorry. And, and I'm like, let me help you fix your tire. She's like, okay, I had to call insurance. And she's telling me this. And I'm like, bzz, 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 bzz. Oh, yeah. Like taking the tire off, putting the new one on, listening to her, just helping her. Like five minutes later, she's on the road. She's going to work. She knows she's going to make it fine. And she was so grateful. And yes, it took my time. It took me getting off the freeway and turning around, going the opposite way in which I wanted to. It took time to take off the tire and put one on, right? And then I had to go up the freeway farther and turn around again. It took time. It took effort. But I delighted in it because I was, I was blessing this person. I was helping them, and I, was, and I was giving of myself, right? And so sometimes it's easy to do that, and sometimes, though, it's hard. Right? Sometimes I feel like there's been moments where I'm like, okay, I'm driving down the freeway, you know, 60 is straight, so you can see for like miles, and I'm like, oh, there's a car on the side of the road. It's kind of like tilted a little bit, like it's got a flat tire. But it's like 9 o'clock at night, and I'm tired. And God's like, hey, you should go fix that tire. Now I'm like half a mile away. I'm like, oh, but I'm, I'm going too fast. I'm over too many lanes this way. And they're all the way over there. And I'm really tired, God. I want to go to bed. I don't think I have time for this. And then next thing you know, I pass them. And I didn't listen to that prompting of the spirit that was given to me. 
And then I get home and I'm up for like two or three hours because I want to do whatever I want to do. Right? And so all these excuses I gave myself weren't enough to, to stop in the moment. Right? But there's other times where I see people, they have flat tires and maybe I can't stop. Right? Maybe I'm like, dry, like for example, like there's a time I was driving on the freeway and my mom had a cut in her leg and it was from a rusty thing. And I'm like, oh, she's going to get some sort of poisoning and she's going to bleed out and die. I got to hurry and get to the hospital. It wasn't that bad. It was like a few stitches, but I don't do good with blood and medical. So I take her, but then I see someone on the side of the road. I'm like, I'm sorry, but my mom's going to die. We're going to the hospital. And so, right, I don't feel guilty about that. I don't feel guilty about passing that person up because I had something else that I was doing that was important. And I didn't feel God prompting me to go that way. Right? We all have these promptings from the Spirit if we've been united with Christ, if we've become believers. Right? It's, maybe it is a tire, and maybe, maybe it's not a tire because you know if you're going to get out of your car and help the person, it's going to end up being worse than it was before. So maybe, maybe it's not tires, right? But maybe it's helped someone load up a car. You see them with kids, and they're running around and crazy, and the mom looks stressed, and she's on the phone. And maybe it's helping her load those cars in the grocery, and then maybe taking her cart into the stall for her. Maybe it's giving someone that extra $5 while you're in the grocery line as they're, they're struggling and saying, okay, I can't get that. Let's take this away, this away. And out of your abundance, you give it to them, right? Maybe it's stopping someone that's trying to steal from a store. I had a friend who actually did this, chased down a kid that was trying to steal from a store, right? Maybe it's speaking, some, speaking truth into someone's life rather than tearing them down or letting them believe lies or letting them live a life that is in darkness, and you feel led to say something, but you're too nervous, and so you don't. The conversation here is more, it's, it's more than just doing the right thing and the wrong thing. It's not trying to please God with making all of the right actions and all of the right steps and doing all of the right things so that we can earn our way. But rather, it's about listening to the Spirit that lives within us. It's about, it's about communing with God, about being attentive to the ways that he's prompting you to follow his will. Right? Because the ultimate problem, again, is that sin is still present in the world. That there, but there's a cure for this sin, right? And Peter and Carl have mentioned that there's this medication, this medicine that we can take. And that cure for evil is hope in Christ. It's being united with Christ. It's believing that he died for all the sins of the world and would be raised again. But there's still that tension. This is why Paul, in the very next verse, uh, chapter 7, verse 24, he says, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I mean, we've been there before. I just gave a couple examples in my own life where I would wake up the next day and feel guilty about not stopping to help that person. But it could also be like the series of decisions we make about not following God's will and leading us to a point where, where we're struggling and we're having difficulties and we're, we're feeling guilty and shameful about all these decisions that we made before and led us to this point. I mean, when I think about feeling wretched, I imagine the Apostle Peter, after the third time he denied Christ, and the rooster crowed, and Jesus' prophecy was fulfilled. Oh, how wretched. Or what about David, right? We mentioned him earlier. 
the thing about David is the prophet Nathan came up and said to him, hey, I'm going to give you this illustration. And what do you think is wrong? Probably the guy who killed that man. He said, you're that man. You're the one who killed another. I mean, even in David's own words in Psalm 51, he says, deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God. There's this wretchedness that we can sometimes feel when, we're, when, we're, when we know that we're following the law of the flesh and not the law of the Spirit. But it doesn't end there. Paul doesn't finish the letter of Romans there, leaving us no hope. No, we're getting to the very climax of Romans, which is why in verse 25 he says, Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. See, Paul knows and he understands that Jesus is the one who gives us hope that we're looking for. He knows that Jesus is the one at the end of the day who's going to wipe every tear away. That Jesus is sitting at the right hand of the Father and has authority and dominion and power over everything. And that Jesus is the one who defeated sin once and for all upon the cross. And the way that we find ourselves being able to even have that tension of do I follow Christ or not follow Christ, do I follow the law of the flesh or the law of the Spirit, is being reminded that we are united with Christ. We have been united with Him who has defeated sin and death. In our baptisms, we have died to this old self. And we have been risen and made new and made united with Christ in His death and His resurrection. And that Spirit of God lives within us. He lives within us. And the Spirit of God lives within us to fight back against evil and darkness and for goodness and truth. This is why we get to the climax, the very pinnacle of chapter 8, verse 1. He says, There is there now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. When you come to believe, when you live in this converted life, repenting of your sins, proclaiming Christ as your Lord and Savior, being baptized and being in communion with him, you're learning to live within the law of the spirit as the spirit lives within you. just as a reminder in chapter 6 and verse 4, it says, we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death. I didn't physically die when I was baptized, but the old way in me died. Just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. It's through our baptisms that his old self is put away and the new self is put on. Right? We may have to ask ourselves, right, am, I, am I a converted person? Am I really following the ways of God? Have I, have I listened to his commands? Have I followed his word? Am I, am I repenting of my sin? Am I proclaiming Christ as my Lord and Savior? Not me, not my own strength, not the strength of corporations, not the strength of humanism, not the strength that I can do everything in all my strength, but the strength of Christ that lives within me, who has authority and power 
And are we being filled with Spirit every day? Are, are we communing with God and bringing to Him those dark things we may not want Him to know or see that He knows anyway? Are we listening to His Word? Are we responding in a way that shows us, okay, God, I trust You, even in my darkness, even in the difficult parts of my life. And it's this, and it's because of this, Paul can then contrast our lives with maybe the lives of those who might not be saved. In verse 3 it says, For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do, by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For those with Christ, we can, we can hear God calling us. We can hear Him prompting us. We can hear Him urging us in ways to act that might seem contrary to maybe what the world would want. But it's the Spirit of God within us. And the Spirit of God gives us life to fight back against the powers of evil and darkness and fight for goodness and truth. And what's great is we're going to be continuing to go through Romans the next few weeks with Father Carl and Father Peter. But I think it's important it's, it's that we just stop and continue just a little bit farther. Right? We, can, we can keep saying that we're struggling with sin. We can keep saying that we're doing that. But if that sin leads us to feel the shame that doesn't allow us to go to Christ, we're not allowed to be, in, we're not finding ourselves in communion with God. And it's the world that needs this. It's the world that needs Jesus. It's people in our lives that need Jesus. I talked about Jesus being this cure for sin as he defeated it. And I think about people with diabetes, for example. They have the pumps on their bodies that pump insulin because their body's not able to make the insulin. And without that pump, without that supply of insulin, surely they will die. And so if someone doesn't want to die, if, if a child is born and a parent doesn't want their child to die of diabetes, then they, then they make sure they have the pump. They make sure the pump is on, that the battery is working, that the insulin is in there. And then once that's all there, it's just being delivered. It's the same thing with us. When we're united with Christ, we have become one with him. He is with us and we are with him and he is always there giving us life. But we are constantly attending to that relationship with him. We're attending that through prayer. We're attending it through communion. We're attending it through worship. We're attending it through giving. We're attending it through thanksgiving. We're attending to that relationship. We're communing with him in those moments as he is putting himself in us. The spirit of God is living in us to fight back against evil and darkness and for goodness and truth. All right, and so when we start failing, when we start wondering why we're not able to overcome certain sin in our life, when we're wondering why everything around us is so dark and painful, it's not that we, we just grit our teeth and pull up our bootstraps and do what we can to get it done. We learn to call on Jesus. 
We learn to say, God, this is too much for me to handle, but you are still good and in your mercies, which are new every morning, I trust you and I believe in you. And we call upon Jesus, the name above every name. We call upon God, the one who can save us. So in our moments of weakness, may we not despair. May we not find ourselves isolated and lonely and wallowing, rather learning to walk in the Spirit, learning to put to death the desires of the flesh so that we might become more like Christ with every new day, that we learn to trust in the Spirit, even when it doesn't seem convenient or even when it doesn't seem right or even when it might not make sense, that we learn to trust in the Spirit that we continue walking in communion with God. The Spirit of God is living within us to fight back against the powers of evil and darkness and to fight for goodness and truth. So may we lean on Christ. May we commune with Christ, with our prayers, with the way we read Scripture, with the way that we fellowship with one another so we can fight back against the powers of evil and darkness and we can instead fight for goodness truth.